Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Your Ben Jarofsky show for this Thursday, July 6th starts now. On today's show, Ben welcomes back Chief Ben Jarofsky show legal analyst turned five-card stud, Brennan Schiller. The Ben Jarofsky Show is brought to you in part by SEIU Healthcare Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for everything there is to know in the city of Chicago. Where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, whatever you want. If it's Chicago, it's at ChicagoReader.com. And if you want uh, more Ben Jarofsky, that's at ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. That's J-O-R-A, V as in victory, S-K-Y. Hello again, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Board Move Thursday, and here's why. Because Mayor Johnson made his move. School board move. As the Sun-Times says, I'm going to show my distinguished guest. It's an actual newspaper. He's stunned. He can't believe anybody actually still reads a newspaper. Mayor's school board shakeup. In his biggest move since taking office, Johnson replaces nearly entire Chicago Board of Education. This is such a Chicago story. It's like, like life is meaningless for Chicago, and particularly the journalistic crew. Life is just has no meaning unless someone is bossing someone around in Chicago. Fire someone. Do it now. <laughs> oh, breaking news. The mayor fired all the school board members, replaced them with someone else. Yeah, that was old day. That was yesterday's news. He kept one on. It's like a lefty school board now, not a squishy liberal school board. See, now there's a difference. And if you listen to the Ben Jarofsky show, you will know the difference between liberals and lefties. You should know that difference by now. That's if there's one thing you get from this show, there's a difference between a lefty and a liberal. I know the words are used interchangeably all the time. The squishy uh, modifier is added by our dear friend, Michael Girardi, who will be returning to this show next week. I just put that out there. Uh, Michael, we're going to be cutting a deal and bring him back next week. Squishy liberals. But traditionally, the mayor city of Chicago appoints the school board. The school board is essentially a rubber stamp or whatever the mayor wants to do. That is a result. Well, that's probably been the way things existed going way, way back before any of you were born when Richard J. Daly ruled the land. I could give you all kinds of war stories from the 60s and 70s when there would be a teacher strike. <laughs> board members appointed by Daly would be negotiating with the school board members. I have that in quotes. And then after like, I don't know, three days of a strike or four days of a strike, they would all be called into Richard J. Daly's office. And he would like, Harumph, we're not going to leave this office until we get this deal done. And they would stay in there all night and eat pizza and stuff. And in the morning, they'd have a deal. And then the citizens of Chicago would bow down. Oh, Mayor Daly, we are so lucky you are our mayor. My distinguished guest knows what I'm saying is true, even if he wasn't born when it was happening. 
So that tradition is carried on in the city of Chicago. And in 1995, they changed the law to give Baby Daly. That's the one you all know, ladies and gentlemen, Richard M. Daly, uh, complete control of the school board. And he immediately put in a bunch of squishy liberals, a whole bunch of bankers and lawyers and financiers who would basically do whatever he said. Whatever he said, close this school. You got it, boss. Open this school. You got it, boss. Refinance the whole thing so bankers make even more money. You got it, boss. The most important thing they did was look the other way while Daly robbed the Board of Education of property tax dollars through the TIF program. Won't bore you with the explanation of how it works, Chicago. I know you're incapable of understanding how the TIF program works. I've tried. 20 years I've tried, distinguished guests. I have tried to get the city of Chicago to understand how TIFs work. And the city of Chicago has said to me, no, Ben, we absolutely refuse to understand how they're stealing our property tax dollars for their <laughs> ignoble pursuits. We don't want to know. We'd rather know about NASCAR. Okay. I could talk about NASCAR too, ladies and gentlemen. I could talk about anything. So, yeah. They looked the other way. All these squishy liberals looked the other way while they stole, they stole money for their TIF program. Unbelievable. So now it's a new day. We have a lefty mayor, Mayor Brandon Johnson, formerly of the Chicago Teachers Union. Uh, and he has moved out the squishy liberals and brought in lefties. And immediately, right on cue, the media in this town, <laughs> they emanated that message. Yes, you may be on the school board, lefties, but you can't do anything. There's no money. There's nothing but deficits. You have pension obligations. You're not going to get the federal money that you got last year. There's going to be huge deficits. What are you going to do, lefties? And here's the underscore point. Give up your dreams. All is hopeless. Never have a lefty pursuit. Just sell out. Be co-opted. Give it all away. That's what they're saying in short. I mean, that's the subterranean message. You'll never win. We will always prevail. You know, I got a lot of sympathy for MAGA. There's nothing legitimate whatsoever about the discourse that goes on. We pretend it's legitimate. So like MAGA has just said, we don't believe any of it. We're going to believe the biggest liar and grifter that this country has ever elected. That's quite a statement. To any office, I want my distinguished guests to think about that. Is there a bigger grifter that has ever been elected to office? And it doesn't even have to be president. It could be like alderman, state rep, state senator, whatever, than Donald John Trump. I say no. I say Donald John Trump is the biggest grifter this country has ever elected. But since nothing is real anyway, they might as well believe in surreal Donald. And they become a cult. They travel around the country and follow him. And I blame it on you, squishy liberals, because nothing is real in the city of Chicago. So it's just so funny that as soon as the lefties get in, they're told immediately there's nothing they can do. They can't reopen schools. They can't expand programs. They can't have preschool programs. They can't have post-school programs. You can't do sports in the schools. You can't bring theater drama to every school. You can't have art in every school. You can't expect, you can't have after school math. You can't have a chess club. None of this. You can't afford it. Don't even think about it. Just think about closing schools, firing teachers. That's reality. It's funny. They say that now, but all those years, I never heard them once say, to the developers who are feeding at the public school trough with the TIF funds. I never heard them once say, hey, developers, 
Times are tough. We got to give the kids an after-school art program. You can't have money for Lincoln Yards. Sorry, developers. You can't have money for your freaking Olympics. Nope. Got to spend that money on the kids. Never, ever, ever. I, I ask any of you, I challenge you, show me an instance once over the last 30 years where anyone in the mainstream media said to the rich and the powerful of Chicago, I'm sorry, you cannot have your dessert until we've had our main course. You can't find it, ladies and gentlemen. You're just like, if I were really paranoid, I'd say they're radiating these thoughts to control your mind. But I know by saying that I sound like a MAGA lunatic. So I'm going to pull back from that. I don't want to be considered a MAGA lunatic. Although at some point, no matter what you espouse, they just say you're like a MAGA lunatic. I remember back in the early O's when I first started really writing my political columns as opposed to neighborhood news stories. Like the centrists in the city go, Ben, you know, you're really dangerously sounding like a leftist, you know, advocate. I think you might want to pull back a little bit on that because your credibility is challenged. I'm like, what credibility? Nobody listens to what I say anyway. What do I care? What do I care? I'm a political columnist for an alternative newspaper. You know, like, I guess I made that decision a long time ago. Ladies and gentlemen, and you know what I really wanted to do? What I should have done, which is now going to bridge me to my distinguished guest who's patiently waiting while I orate. Peter Cunningham would say it would be a rant, but I say I am orating, thinking, rationally speaking. What I always wanted to do was be a gambler. I don't know if I ever told Brenda Chiller, my distinguished guest, who gave it all up in Chicago to become a gambler. I don't know if I ever told you this, uh, Brendan, but back in the day in the 70s, probably before you were born, or maybe when you were a little baby, I was a gambler. I, too, was a I was a terrible gambler. OK, but I was a racetrack poker. I did it all, man. And then one day I just walked away because you know why? I think I did tell you this. I was chasing the money. And the thing I learned was you cannot chase the money. You have to have patience. You have to be strategic. And I didn't have the patience and I didn't have the discipline. So I walked away from it. But you are living my dream. Brendan Schiller left Chicago where he was a distinguished attorney uh, and a politico, a political operative, the son of one of the great lefties in the city of Chicago, Helen Schiller, former older woman of the 46th Ward. Welcome back, Brendan. Thank you. How are you doing today? I'm fired up, man. Ladies and gentlemen, Brendan and I had like an hour pre-show talk. If we ever could put our pre-show talks on the air, I could charge premium. Pre-show talks are always fascinating in their own way. Anyway, uh, welcome back, Cotter. And um, uh, so just to s reintroduce uh, Brendan to everybody. Uh, Brendan lived, born and raised in the city of Chicago, proud graduate of Whitney Young High School uh, from the uptown community where his mom was the older woman. Uh, he was a very successful criminal defense lawyer partner of the great April Prayer, frequent guest on this show, uh, built a mini, and I have it in quotes, empire, uh, the empires in quotes, uh, on the west side of Chicago and uh, decided, no, I'd rather play poker in Vegas. Uh, and about, was it two years ago, uh, Brendan, you moved out of Chicago, moved to Vegas? About two years and four months ago, but also I was actually a high school dropout from when young. You said I was a graduate. I was a high school dropout. Folks, if you could see the <laughs> you dropped out 
yeah, I, I really never really attended with Young much. I was enrolled for a few years. Um, after, uh, but mostly after my freshman year, I was mostly at Lincoln Park Zoo and Zimmerman's Liquor Store. And then um, I eventually uh, ended up at the state colleges at Truman Middle College and the state colleges in the early 90s. Uh, and, but yeah, I was a high school dropout. Wow. I did not know. Did you get your GED? Yes. Was it hard taking the test? No. But so after I dropped out of high school, I was eventually hired by my people, um, Slim Coleman and George Atkins, to be working at All Chicago City News. So I, I became the managing editor of All Chicago City News without a high school degree. And that was the best education I ever had. And by the time I made it to college, I was getting straight A's because of how they taught me to read, write, and think. Wow. What year was that that you were the editor? I remember you were, you were working. I remember your byline in the newspaper. So I was, um, I dropped out of high school at the age of 16. On the day I turned 16, on the day, the same day my mother was first elected alderman, 1987. It was all the same day. Damn. Um, I hadn't been going to school for that whole year, but she didn't know it because she was running for alderman. Um, and, and the same day she was elected is the same day I turned 16 and I could officially drop out. And that summer, I went and I worked for Justice Graphics and All Chicago City News. And Kathy Archibald and George Atkins and Slim Coleman taught me how to think critically and write. And by, the sum, by 1989, when I was 18 years old, when I turned 18 years old in that summer, by 1989, I was the managing editor of All Chicago City News. Wow. I stayed the managing editor without a high school degree. Um, and I ended up doing actually some other alternative media stuff. Achio Bejas turned me on to some stuff at WBZ and the Chicago Tribune. And I did all that without a high school degree for a few years before I finally went back to school. A high school diploma. High school diploma, yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, wow, did not know any of that. Shout out Achio Bejas, dear friend of the show. Uh, and did, I did not know that. Of course, uh, that leads up to the moment when we met. Uh, that famous time, which Brendan is so sick of hearing me talk about, I've turned into like that old uncle that tells the same story all over going, but it's like, Oh my God, do I have to hear this story again? But I love this story so much. I'm just going to indulge myself. So I think it was when his mom was running for reelection in 1991. And I walked into her, her campaign headquarters on Wilson Avenue. And there was young Brendan who was at that time, ladies and gentlemen, 20 years old. And you were tall. You were smoking a cigarette, but you're also tall. Maybe like six, two or something like that. And I go, do you know that smoking cigarettes will stunt your growth? And <laughs> I love that story. So and Brendan was like, that's not funny. <laughs> Sorry. Um, anyway, so much to talk about. I sent you that last text. I don't know if you saw it. I really want to talk about imposter syndrome. I actually promoted it in yesterday's show. And then I completely forgot to talk about it on the pre-show. So let, let's not. Let me get out of this conversation without talking about imposter syndrome and uh, the role it plays in life, uh, especially in, I bet you it's huge in gambling. Um, before we turn our attention to uh, your thoughts on uh, what's going on in Chicago, whether you agree with me with my opening riff uh, about how Chicagoans are brainwashed, feel free to vis vigorously disagree with me uh, if you don't agree with me. Let's just talk about where you're at right now. I am so jealous of you right now. You are, damn, just you tell the folks where, uh, what you're right in the midst of. Go ahead. Yeah, so 
Poker had a boom in the early 2000s when ESPN started televising the World Series of Poker. Yeah. And the World Series of Poker has become basically a 90 event, bracelet event, trophy event, and about 500 tournament event that happens from May 30th to July 17. Um, there will probably be 40 to 50,000 unique entries in some of those events. The main event is happening right now. We're on day four, 1D. So there's four day ones and two day twos of the main event. It's a $10,000 buy-in. There'll be between nine to 10,000 people who participate. So the total prize pool is the biggest prize pool of any poker tournament. It goes all the way till July 17 when the final table will exist. And here's the thing. I begged to be on your show because <laughs> the first, the one and only time, the last time I was on your show was last December. And I was about to give up on poker because 2022 was not profitable. But I talked to you when we did the podcast in between my day one and the day two of the win uh, December Millions, which is a $10,000 buy-in with 3,000 entries. And that tournament, I ended up playing six days, coming in 20th place, uh, netting $134,000, which was far and away my biggest payday. And my initial lesson from that was, oh, I'm finally on my way. In reality, over the last six months, I've, I've given all that money back and I realized my lesson should have been in between my day ones and day twos of the biggest tournaments of the year. I need to be talking to Ben Krofsky about po poker politics and public policy. And so that's why I begged to be on the show, because that's exactly where we're at. I finished my day one C yesterday um, and I play day two tomorrow of the WSOP. You don't make the money till about day four, the morning of day four, which would be uh, Monday. But we're on our way now that I'm talking to you. Okay, so uh, I don't know if you noticed, ladies and gentlemen, but there was a lot of alliteration in that last sentence, poker, politics, and public policy. I'll add a third P, pressure. That's a lot of pressure on me. God damn, that's not my fault, ladies and gentlemen, if he doesn't win, okay? I'm just putting that out there, all right? I got nothing to, I'll, I'll claim, I'll be like a typical Chicago uh, mayor. I will get all the credit if you win, and if anything goes wrong, I will blame it on my predecessor. I have no predecessor, but I'll find a predecessor to blame it on. Like Lori Lightfoot blamed everything on Rom. Rom blamed everything on Daly. Well, Daly, everything got blamed on Harold Washington. He wasn't around to defend himself. Um, well, I'm just going to just take a, a brief moment to send out good vibrations to you. Um, hold on. There we go, man. Those are some good vibrations. I actually, it's been so long since I played poker. I used to be an addict that I don't, I can't even like put myself back in the mind frame. So where are you at? I, like you're in the midst of a huge competition. This is like the, the, like college teams going for the final four. This is like my beloved bulls going for the, trying to beat Miami in the play and to get to the playoffs. I mean, like, where's your mind at right now that you're able to even talk to me? Yeah. So, so one, I mean, poker really has changed and evolved a lot, especially tournament poker, right? Cash poker is very similar to probably when you played it in some ways, it's different, but tournament poker, um, in terms of the math and the theory and understanding, um, when you should take risks and when you shouldn't is all based on, uh, you know, your blinds, your pots ratio stack, your level, how far you are from the money and all that. Um, because this is such a long tournament, 
uh, and it moves so slow and the levels and the blinds move so slow. Um, you know, really the first two or three days, there's not a lot of pressure. Uh, and you're really just playing hand by hand and there's not a lot to think about in between. Now, when I get to Monday or Tuesday and we're in the money and there's pay jumps and, and there's a lot of things to consider, there'll be a lot more pressure. But the only thing you, I really do in between, I only, I played five levels. I didn't play the full 10 hours of poker. I played nine hours of poker last yesterday. I actually only played three hands that mattered. And um, I won two of them and I lost one. So the only thing I've done in between yesterday and today is about half a dozen folks, I texted the hand history of the one I lost to discuss if it was a way to play it any differently. And sometimes there's just no way to play things differently. Things just happen the way they happen and you can't control um, the variance or the cards. But you, but when I misplay a hand or when I play a hand that I lost, I want to go through it multiple times to just analyze it. And so that's all I've done that. And otherwise I'm just hanging out today. All right. Uh, uh, man, I don't, I don't know how much I want to go down this road, but I can't resist uh, a couple of things I have to follow up on for my listeners. Uh, levels and blinds explain what that means. Yeah. So, you know, previously people always focused on how much money you have, how many chips you have, and how much you're betting and and as as poker theory evolved you know a decade or even more ago two decades and it's evolved you really focus on how many blinds are in your stack so in tournaments in order to make the thing happen and move the blinds that you pay the amount of money that goes into the pot before anybody gets cards increases um every so often every level most poker tournaments, the levels increase every 30 minutes, every 40 minutes, because you're trying to get over in a day or two, get over in a day or two. This tournament, the blind levels increase every two hours. So you only play five levels a day, which is why it goes all the way to July 17. Um, and what matters is, so if you could have 100,000, you know, people talk about dollars. You have $100,000 worth of chips in your stack, but that doesn't matter because the question is, are the blinds $100 or the blinds $10,000? Because $100,000, if the blinds are $100, means you have 1,000 big blinds. $100,000, if the blinds are $10,000, means you only have 10 big blinds. And that, how many big blinds you have and how many big blinds is the average stack and how many big blinds your opponent has dictates how creative, dictates the math on, on, what, on how much you bet on every street, dictates your understanding of poker theory, and and that changes early on in tournaments the average stack is maybe 100 big blinds when you start to get to the money it's maybe 40 big blinds and when you get to the final table it's maybe 15 or 20 big blinds and that all that changes how you're supposed to play poker all right time out i uh, just need a basic definition for listeners a blind what does literally blind mean so i'm playing no limit hold'em poker and that and in uh, in No Limit Hold'em Poker, I actually consider it a socialist game because the button and the position and the dealer rotates and you start the tournament with the exact amount of money, regardless, there's no legacy. But the other thing is, is that two players have to put in money to start this pot before the, before the hand ever starts and that rotates. Um, and so the first person before the dealer, the dealer button or the dealer puts in half of a blind and the second person puts in a full blind and that that like i said every level that that amount increases 
Um, and then there's also an ante, which all the players theoretically put in, but that's the old days. Now what happens is whoever puts in the big blind also puts in the ante for everybody. But like I said, that rotates. And so that changes. Every hand, it rotates clockwise, and the next person puts it in, the next person puts it in. That's, that does two things, or three things. It forces you to have a hand that's played every hand. It creates a pot, which creates interest. Um, but then it also, like I said, it increases, which forces people to play and knocks people out as the tournament goes on. And so blind means uh, the metaphor is that you have not seen your cards yet. You're betting dark. You have to right. put money in before you see your cards. Got it. Uh, all right. Uh, probably a little too much poker for the Ben Droska show political junkies who are like, get to the point, Ben. <laughs> Uh, but uh, I could talk poker a lot. Uh, so before I get to the political point and, and feed uh, my listeners what they want to hear, uh, let me ask you this. Uh, I've seen, I've actually watched, I think I told you this last time, I've watched some of these. <laughs> I can't believe I've watched, uh-oh, confession time. I have actually watched this. Um, I love it, like, because they show the cards on TV, ladies and gentlemen. So you can know if, the poker players have, the, you know, what moves they're making. You can learn their strategies. You can tell when they're bluffing because they literally show you the cards. Like when, the, you know how when you're playing cards, you keep your cards to yourself, people. Any card game, hearts, whatever. You keep the cards that you have in your hand up against your chest. In this thing, they show you what's hidden. And so you, the v- viewer, um, uh, can uh, make it. By the way, it's not live. Is I just realized there could be so much cheating. If it was like the Houston Astros in baseball. You could cheat this way. It's not live, is it? Well, so what you would see on ESPN or CBS Sports is 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 usually weeks behind. But, I see. Okay. But there's all. It's been a boom. There's been a second poker boom since COVID, and there's all sorts of streaming. There's cash streaming, and and this tournament. There's always. There's been all sorts of tables that are streaming, but it's about 30, it's a 30 minute delay. There's actually been in the last couple of years, a couple of scandals because of concerns. The way you see the cards is they use a special deck that has a radio frequency waves and each card is marked with a particular frequency and that gets sent to the production. There's been a concern that if you're a producer in production, even though there's a 30 minute delay, that somehow they could be forwarding information to some of the players. So there's been there's been all sorts of security issues raised and tra- kind of addressed over the past couple of years. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a thirty minute delay. All right. Well, uh, look look out, uh, poker players, and, and I urge you during your free time to look up the Houston Astros scandal from the 2017 World Series. I won't bore you with what happened, uh, but they were alerted to pitches that the opposing team pitcher was throwing before he threw the pitches. Uh, or, all right. Um, so let's take poker theory. Oh, so but just one last point. So when how long will it be before our listeners get to watch you on tv if you if you are successful and my vibrations work when will you be on when will brendan schiller be on tv for the world to watch so first off there's um poker streams on pokergo.com and they they sell subscriptions but you don't have to buy them and on youtube of everything going on right now in the world series of poker um you can actually i was actually because i've made such a long run in the win tournament there's actually a youtube of a two hours when i was in playing day five from when i won the uh, big money last december that you can see now but the cbs sports has the contract for the main event and that and they will run 
like ESPN used to do, they'll run a series of one hour shows, uh, probably in August or September. Okay. Wow. All right. So I have a ways to go. And by then you will have one. Right. But, but everything is there's they're streaming right now. So if I make a long run and, and make the final table, whatever, I'll be streamed, at, you know, as it's going on. And how many players in the final table? Well, there's nine players in the final table. This is going to be the biggest main event ever. There's going to be between nine to ten thousand people playing this. We've had over five thousand people play in the first three day ones and about thirty eight hundred have advanced. Um, there are probably four to five thousand that are playing today as we speak. Um, and probably 3,000 will advance, and then there'll be two-day twos, uh, Friday and Saturday. Um, about 1,500 people get paid, and that'll be happen probably on Sunday. They'll make the money, or Monday, Monday morning, they'll make the money. And then the final table, you got to make final nine. So you got to be one-tenth of one percent of the best. And uh, how many people will walk away with money from that final nine? Well, 1,500 people will get some type of money. Um, the final nine all probably will will have a seven figure payday. Whoa! So you you're shooting for that final nine? Yeah, I'm, I'm shooting to be able to come back and um, drop half a million dollars on the Chicago Torture Justice Center and 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 let us breathe and and my friends at Black Lives Matter and folks like that. Uh, so, so, ladies and gentlemen, you could take uh, the lefty out of Chicago but you can't take the left out of the lefty. Uh, so uh, even though he's playing poker, uh, I would argue it's sort of capitalistic. I would, I would, I would, I would push back against that. I think no. poker is one of the most socialistic things there is. And here's why poker tournaments. You always start off with the same amount of chips in real life. You have legacy in real life. The money gets passed on the, the, the billionaires that exploited people, pass their money on to their children and the white privilege exists and they, and you get to go to Harvard because your, your father was a professor there. Every tournament, doesn't matter what you did in the last tournament, you start with the exact same amount of money. And, and every hand, the button rotates, the blinds rotate, the rules stay the same. It doesn't, you can't, it doesn't matter how much you've won. You're not going to be able to lobby the dealer to change the rules. The rules stay the same. The floor always applies the rules that, I would argue that that poker is far more merit-based, far more socialist than anything we do in this country when it comes to economics. I would argue back that what you're describing is not socialism, it's merit-based, which is difference. Uh, I, I would argue, and this is really where I actually want to talk uh, to Brendan about this because this has been on my mind since the Supremes put out that absolutely, the MAGA-6 on the Supremes put out that absolutely ludicrous affirmative action ruling regarding Harvard and North Carolina. Uh, this has been on my mind. So I'm, I'm jumping ahead of everything to put this here because you put it here, Brendan, it's your fault. But the message they sent in that ruling was completely ludicrous and absolutely contradicts the way the world works. And so Clarence Thomas and Sam Alito and all the other Magus uh, people on that bench projected this notion that in the world, it's a meritocracy and we are rewarded by virtue of our success. The way Michael Jordan was rewarded with a championship because he was the best and the Bulls were the best. And that is not how the world works at all. Clarence Thomas's and Sam Alito's career proves that. 
Do you think those billionaires are flying them on airplanes to go fishing in Alaska because they have the best test scores? <laughs> no, they're flying them to Alaska because they're their little rubber stampers, just like the Board of Education members were Mayor Daly's rubber stampers. I, do you think those Board of Education members were put on the school board by Mayor Daly because they proved to have the wisest vision as to what we can do to make sure that all students learn at the same. No, they were put on there because Mayor Daly knew that their business connections would require them to rubber stamp any old dumb idea he had. So, Brendan, do you follow what I'm saying? They profess that they're ruling supports the notion of a meritocracy that exists when in fact their careers prove that no such meritocracy exists. Do you agree with me? White supremacy and the construct it creates dictates that people who are in power and wealthy have to believe that they're doing it based on merit. Otherwise they will know that they're frauds. Do you think that Sam Alito cares enough? To, like, do you think he really believes? Like, he so, flew on the plane. He flew I, to Alaska. Go ahead. I, so the, <laughs> I had this debate with somebody. There's a, there's a woman who's originally from Chicago. She's now in Houston. She used to live in uh, uh, Las Vegas. And she built a whole black erotica um, million-dollar company called uh, Sugar Brown. Um, and I actually had this debate with her uh, just yesterday. I think everybody in their heart knows all the people in power, all the people with wealth know that they have the wind at the back of their sails in their heart. Um, but they can't admit it out loud. They can't, they all know, but they can't admit it out loud. So they have to justify they have to justify their use of power. They have to justify a system that brings premature death to black and brown people so that they can live a nice life. Wow. And so they call it merit when they, everybody knows it's not. Well, uh, I, I, I hope my show, my show reaches just a small fraction of humanity. But I believe, I said this yesterday, I will say this again and again, that the Supreme Court is gaslighting the hell out of black America with that ruling. No, 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 no. They're gaslighting white America. Those rulings are never about black America. Those rulings are not about gaslighting black America. They don't, care. They don't need to gaslight black America. They don't care about it. They're gaslighting white America. What do you mean by that? What W.E.B. Du Bois called the psychic wages of white supremacy has always been about convincing white folks that they're better off as long as they're better than a few black or brown folks, even if they're getting fucked by other white folks. And that's consistently what we've had for the last 50. This Here's the point. The overall context for when we discuss Brandon Johnson and Mayor Daley is really what's been happening in this country for the last 50 years. You had 30 years in the history of this country. You had 30 years of anti-poverty programs of a, a economic uh, growth that was based on putting money from the ground up. You had the third, the 40s, 50s, and 60s. You had the New Deal, the Great Society. But then when you brought, when you lifted enough white people out of poverty, 
when the, between the housing programs and the and the healthcare programs and the food programs, when enough and the education programs and the massive infrastructure and education that was built in the 40s, 50s, 60s, when enough white folks got lifted out of poverty, we've had 60 years of backlash from Nixon to Reaganomics to what people call neoliberalism, which is really just more Reaganomics and investing for public commons. You've had 60 years of backlash because because we did it. We brought enough white folks out of poverty, and now we're starting to help too many black and brown folks. And it's not the megas exist. They, they, there is a there. It's not conspiracy. It's called white supremacy and capitalism. <laughs> it's, it's construct. The psychic wages of whiteness is that your life is a little worse because as long, but you're, you 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 revel in it because your life's a little bit better than those black and brown motherfuckers. Yeah. Well, when I was talking about gaslighting, and I, I see your larger point, they really don't care about black people, but they project this notion. Uh, and Clarence Thomas, uh, oh God, he articulates it all the time. And I sent you an essay by John McWhorter, the New York Times, which you, I totally understand if you did not read it. I read it so you don't have to read it. Uh, and John McWhorter is a brilliant linguist, writes a column for the New York Times. And um, his so many of his views are, are parallel Clarence Thomas or Sir Thomas uh, Sowell. Uh, and the notion is that he, he as he articulates it in uh, his essay, McWhorter, uh, and as Clarence Thomas p- puts it in his rulings, they never felt so, I don't know what the word is, uh, inadequate as when they realized that they had earned something by virtue of the fact uh, that they were black. So in the case of McWhorter, he wrote that he got a position at a university because they needed a black person in the linguist. I think it was it was either the I think it was the, the linguist department. I apologize if I have the wrong department. Uh, and in the case of Clarence Thomas, it's when he <laughs> somehow or other getting the being a black guy who got nominated because they needed that black guy to, on the Supremes wasn't as bad as getting a scholarship or something at Yale. I don't know. I, it's funny how he his mind is so twisted. Uh, and I just, I'm like, I don't buy that at all. I hope there's no black people out there who are buying that in this world. You take what no, you can get. And no, if, if someone's going to give you a crumb just by virtue of the fact, I don't know, because you take the crumb, the, the legacy kid is not feeling guilty because they gave him a crumb. It's not even a crumb. It's like a whole half a cupcake or something. Do you follow what I'm saying, Brendan? Yeah. I, I don't think they're right. I don't think. Clarence Thomas or John Gordon are writing for black folks. I think they're writing for white folks. And I don't think you you called it at one point imposter syndrome. It's not imposter syndrome. It's it's just a white supremacist mindset. That's all it is. And there and 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 just like the white folks who are in power know what the dynamic is and they're pretending like they don't, so does Clarence Thomas and John Gordon. And they know what to do. That's why I think. Wow, man. Well, it's related to imposter. Let's talk imposter syndrome for a little while before we get into poker theory and Brandon Johnson. That, ladies and gentlemen, stick around for that. Imposter syndrome is the notion that you're not, you're an imposter. You don't warrant or deserve what you've earned. And if the world saw you for the imposter that you were, uh, you would be humiliated. And so you humiliate yourself before the world can humiliate you. It is a trip, ladies and gentlemen. And that's kind of what McWhorter was projecting uh, in his essay. Well, I wasn't really worthy. There was a kid who had a better test score than I did. He probably should have gotten this gig. I'm not 
really deserving of it. That's how I read it. Your thoughts? Yeah, I I think that, again, that that's uh, just a white supremacist mindset. And I think he's just justifying white supremacy. I, I didn't read it as imposter syndrome. But I mean, we can discuss imposter syndrome. Um, and I just don't think that that's applicable in that article. I, I do think it's interesting when you raised it. I, I thought about poker. And I think poker is very difficult because there's things you can't control. Um, you know, the, the, even if you take a spot where you know you're supposed to win 80% of the time, sometimes um, that 20% comes a thousand times in a row because math is infinite and life is infinite and energy is infinite, right? And 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 if you react to the 10 or 15 or 20 times it goes against you, even if you took the 80% spot as opposed to your decision-making, you start to believe that that maybe you aren't worthy. Um, and that's the, that's the fight in poker. And that's actually the fight in life, right? Um, sometimes in life, you can do the right thing and still get a bad result. And that can happen a lot. And that's true in the struggle, right? We were, from my perspective, I was fighting the fight, fighting the struggle for 20 years. And then I leave town and we finally get a lefty mayor. (laughs) 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 And not not only that, but we got a bunch of lefty aldermen. And and sometimes, you know, and, and I look at my mother and she got, she fought the fight forever. And then she finally, you know, in her last few years, she just gave up against voting against the budget. I mean, she'll say she got everything she wanted, but it's hard. It's hard. Um, and, and so there is, you begin to wonder whether you're doing the right thing in poker and in life just because the results don't come. And, 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 and we all know we're going to die before there's full justice, right? We all know that we're going to die. And the day we die, there's going to be all sorts of injustices and all sorts of people are going to be harmed. And the, and no matter what we do during our life, that's going to be the case the day we die. Um, so, I, you know, I struggled um, before I before I was able to accept that, that the courts at 26 in California and Dirksen were completely arbitrary and that there really wasn't a good set of metrics for justice. Um, I struggled every day when I would go and there would be people's lives in my hand. And regardless of how hard I fought, they would be harmed. I struggled every day when there would be folks be be in prison and I knew they shouldn't be. I struggled every day when there'd be mothers crying because a a civil jury didn't want to say that that their kid's death was unjustified. Um, And and that was and before I could before I got to the point where I understood that that was the system, I, I suffered, like maybe I shouldn't be the one doing this. Maybe I shouldn't be here. And I think that that's natural for everybody. Yeah. That's that line. Uh, got it right. Uh, we all know that when we die, there will still be injustice. So that ultimately we will not have completely succeeded at whatever we wanted to do, because what we want to do is so difficult. Far more difficult than winning the World Series of Poker. For sure. Far more difficult than um, Michael Jordan and the Bulls winning a championship. Far more different than building a skyscraper in the city of Chicago, which is why, ladies and gentlemen, skyscrapers get built in the city of Chicago all the time. And yet, (laughs) injustice does not get eradicated all the time. But we seem to put so much stock in mayors who can build skyscrapers. (laughs) Very weird. All right. So my theory about poker and mayors, 
Uh, it's also chess to a certain degree. I don't know. Did you play chess, uh, Brennan? I do. I still play chess, actually. Okay. I've stopped playing chess because um, I would get a headache. But uh, <laughs> my my is like my world is uh, spades now. You know, it's about as much uh, far reaching <laughs> I can do with my brain. I love spades, the card game. Um, so, all right. I'm going to say this is a chess metaphor or a uh, poker metaphor. Uh, but there are moves you make now early in the game. Uh, that you may lose, you may sacrifice. It may not seem like the wisest decision, but they're ultimately uh, intended to prevail in the long run. Uh, and uh, to use, uh, to further that analogy, something you said to me before we went on the air, which I will now do my best to paraphrase, Mayor Daly, Baby Daly, the one that all of you millennials know about, because you were alive when he was was there, uh, co-opted uh, the black political establishment in the city of Chicago in the 90s. Won him over, okay, uh, one way or the other, so that by the time they were part of his little crew, he could start selling off the city in the 2000s. That was a brilliant observation by uh, Brendan Schiller. I cannot claim credit for coming up with that. He came up with it, not me. He did it this morning on the phone. Um, similarly, Mayor Johnson could be making his moves right now. If you think of life as a politics, as this giant game of chess or poker, he could be making his moves now so that he could gain something in the future. So take the deep dive. First of all, explicate a little more if you want about your Mayor Daly theory. Because uh, I think it's worth, and then yeah. we'll get into what Brandon uh, Johnson is up to. So go ahead, start with Mayor Daly. Yeah, no, well, I think you're accurate. I think in poker and in chess and in politics, you have to have a long-term plan. Um, you know, Harold Washington used to say it takes 20 years to to uh, to see if we accomplish anything. You got to look back. Um, Black Panther Party uh, said you got to look 20 years out. I, you know, I, I actually had this debate uh, with some of, not this debate, but this discussion with um, some folks that I'm still in touch with on the left and some activists immediately when, in that period of time before the inauguration, when the mayor, then the mayor-elect was, was making some hires. I think, I think you have to give Brandon Johnson the benefit of the doubt and a lot of credit. He came... Um, he built, he was, he's clearly the most charming and most energetic mayor we've had in a long time, but he built from the ground up along with a bunch of, uh, you know, his, his kitchen cabinet, um, a campaign that brought him from 3% to the victory. Uh, and I think you have to assume looking at what United Working Families and what Chicago Teachers Union has done over the past decade, 15 years, that these folks think strategically in long term. And if that's the case, I think you have to believe that they're doing the mirror of what Daly did. And what Daly did, and frankly, what almost every major U.S. city mayor did, was figure out a way to co-opt both the black political power structure and parts of the left political power structure in the 90s so that they could animate in the 2000s Reaganomics. There was, we talked earlier, 
briefly about how there was only a 30 year period where there was been a ground up economic system in this country. And that was the, the 40s, 50s and 60s. From the 70s on, there's been a backlash against that, in part because of racism, in part because of economics and power. And the backlash has been we're going to be from the top down in terms of our economics. We're going to divest from public infrastructure. Uh, we're going to divest from civil rights protections. Uh, and and that was animated in every major U.S. city in the 90s and 2000s. But daily, in order to accomplish that, he knew when he came in, he barely beat Sawyer. He barely beat Evans. He even had a little bit of a race both times against Davis and, and uh, in P Pincham in 91. He even had a little bit of a race against Gardner in 95. But he, did, he hired a bunch, a bunch of um well-educated, smart black folks and put them in positions of power in the 90s. He even hired some lefties and put them in positions of power at the Department of Housing and Department of Healthcare in the 90s. Now, don't get me wrong. He was taking care of the remnants of his machine. He, he helped build up HDO and Victor Reyes. He helped do some things like that. Dagman was in there taking care of, of all those Southwest side machine folks. And there was a little graft and corruption but the major divestment, the selling of the parking meters, the selling of the Skyway, the Soldier's Field bond deal, the big, massive tift investments in the South Loop in Dearborn Park, all of that really didn't happen until, until after the 99 election. And two things happened after the 99 election. He fought off uh, Bobby Rush during 99, and let's, let's make no mistake about it, Bobby's been selling since 99 and on. Um, and, and some of my party member friend uncles will, will argue he was selling 20 years before that, but I, I don't know anything about that. Um, and he co-opted the last of the city council um, opposition, including, frankly, my mother after the 99 election. And that's when he felt it took 10 years, took three elections, 10 years. But look at look at. And so all those folks, you know, one of the one of the major, you know, one of one of the. Lori Lightfoot was part of that administration. Mary Richardson Lowry was part of that administration. And so then what does Brandon Johnson do? He comes in, he hires Rich Guidus, which makes all of my moderate business friends happy. Mm. He hires some really smart, really good administrative folks up and down the line, in addition to some lefty folks, right? And, and I, think this, I think the court counsel hire was brilliant in terms of Mary Richardson Lowry. That's somebody with all that history um, going back 30 years. And I think you have to credit Brandon Johnson with doing the mirror of what Daly did. I believe that with that, that I, I don't have any inside information, but I believe and hope that they understand that you have to co-opt white folks, you have to co-opt the business community, have them trust you if you're going to reverse 60 years of animated economics in the city and start to rebuild the, the, the commons, the public commons in the city, start to rebuild um, the, the government infrastructure in a way that attracts more people to the city and creates economic growth from the ground up and removes inequality inherently when you create that economic growth. And I think that, that the city council um allies of this mayor the lefties that's what they want to do i suspect and hope that's what ctu wants to do i suspect and hope that's what united working families wants to do that's what they've been saying they want to do but they also know in order to do that you have to spend a few years 
building the public trust and confidence of the people with money and power so that they don't see you coming. Mm, wow. Uh, all right. So they don't see, they all know what's coming. Well, I mean, so it slides in easy. So it slides in easy. Let's just put it to you this way. Uh, they're not dumb. Sure. <laughs> they're the powers that be. They're not dumb. They're probably smarter than I am. Take probably out of that. Uh, out of that sense. So they're looking for something very concrete. Like, for instance, what's uh, uh, on my mind these days, uh, even though it's relatively insignificant, NASCAR. I'm fascinated by the NASCAR uh, spectacle here in the city of Chicago on many levels, uh, uh, Brendan, uh, but to the point, the twisted worldview of Chicago is that a spectacle like NASCAR that has absolutely no benefit to virtually anyone who's an ordinary citizen in the city of Chicago is precisely the demonstration that the powers that be need in order to be assured that Mayor Johnson is their kind of mayor. It's so weird to twist it. It's just like so perverse. It's everything that's idiotic about the city of Chicago. It's everything that Daly stood for. But they need that. They need that assurance that he will what? Give up a huge chunk of downtown real estate for two, three weeks in order to have a televised spectacle. They need I I don't they just kind of need that to feed off. That's like bringing the Super Bowl to Chicago. It will do nothing for 99 percent of the people. But they need that. So they're looking for something, Brendan. They're looking for something. You can't you can't win them over the way you win an alderman over by just giving them a chairmanship about like daily did. I'm going to put you in charge of this committee that will never meet, but you'll get to hire somebody. Well, thanks boss. Do you follow what I just told you? I do. So I got two responses. One, I really am not sure if NASCAR is the best example. I mean, it it was Lori Lightfoot's thing. He is coming in just a couple months before it. I'm not sure what he was supposed to do or not do. I'm not sure that the, the city powers that be really cared that much about NASCAR, but whether it's NASCAR or not, there's clearly a defensiveness about the city. For the last 20 years, Chicago has been a euphemism for black violence, even though black violence is much less harmful than white violence, right? For 20 years, the South Side of Chicago has been a euphemism, frankly, for the N-word nationally. And and so there is a defensiveness, um, which is the product of racism uh, amongst um, the powers that be. And that defensiveness dictates um, their response. And, and so I, th- I understand what you're saying with NASCAR. I just I just don't know if that's I mean, I wasn't even there. I, and, and I heard it was a big boondoggle and disaster. And but um, uh, no, I that's just, t- just so you know, that's not how it's projected. That's that's proving my point. You heard that some friend of yours, some lefty friend of yours in Chicago texted you that you, you, your lefty friend is clearly not reading the newspapers. Okay, <laughs> it's, it's like everything else in this city. It was a freaking joke. It, I mean, it's sad. A man died. There was a contractor who died. And yeah. because of the propaganda machine, you're not allowed to talk about that man dying. So it's like. The media doesn't talk about the man dying. It was a contractor. He died. It, 
he was electrocuted, apparently. And no one talks about it. I just, we're not going to talk about the man who died because that's a shadow on this. So I disagree. It was ridiculous because it rained out. Like, so their little party didn't happen, but they have to pretend like it was a success anyway. So they're contrary to what your friends are texting you. They're projecting success. And now what Mayor Johnson is doing, instead of saying what is honest, which is what a what a ridiculous waste of time and energy this was. All it did was clog up our downtown when you couldn't you couldn't walk through a public park anymore and enjoy nature. Just do something ordinary. No, we clogged up our downtown. We gave it over to this private entity. Nobody in the city of Chicago wanted it. Nobody in the city of Chicago were asked if they want it. And then when it's over, they're like, well, what a success this was. It rained all day. You had to cancel two of the races or you had to cut them back. Brendan, <laughs> how is that a success? And yet that's how it's. And but so it's. Mayor Johnson. I don't know, I don't know anybody who follows success, but that's, I guess I'm just here in Las Vegas. Wait, because you're not yeah. reading the newspapers. Yeah. Yeah. That's your problem. Well, actually, it may be your your wisdom. That you're not <laughs> anyway, I cut you off. I just could not allow that to go on unanswered. Uh, um, but I think right. your, your larger point is relevant, which is that um, there's a defensiveness about the city, which is tied to blackness. And so, uh, and that's part of the pressure you're, you're seeing and you feel. Well, that, by the way, you, you can't get any further from quote unquote blackness than NASCAR. So yeah. here you go. Just think about that for a moment, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, and yet part of the, like the, re oh God, they showed so many pictures in the newspapers of like, they would bring a car to like Hyde Park or something. And like a black kid would be looking at the car. Like this whole thing was set up to get black kids to achieve their dreams of driving NASCAR. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's not what this is about. I hope there's not anybody who believes that this. Anyway, sorry, Brendan, like ranting and raving like a lunatic. Um, so, all right. So you think that uh, there's a tactic. So how will it play out with the school board? He just named, as I began the show, there's, he has, Shake up at the school board, uh, and five lefties have been put on. There are four so, lefties, I can't remember. Go, you know, the, the, let me disclaim that. Um, one of I've had like four or five during the 2010s, I had like four or five things going on, and kind of one of my partners in crime was Tanya Woods, who's the executive director of the West Side Justice Center, and so she was named. Um, so I, as uh, want to throw that disclaimer on, I, you know. This is only for a year, right? That's an elected school board. Um, but this, he had, so he, so this administration had put lefties in certain spots, had put kind of moderate folks in other spots. Um, you know, I think he, it makes sense that the Board of Education is the one place where he did some wholesale changes. Um, you know, my, it's funny, uh, my childhood friend, um, my childhood partner in crime is Tara Stamps, and she was just named the uh, the um, Cook County Commissioner. And what's funny is I was looking at my Instagram, and I have a picture from 1981. Wow. Tara was a little kid, was with her mother, Marion Stamps, and with uh, Slim Coleman and 
Art Vasquez and, and Ruli Lozano and a bunch of other folks and Harold Lucas, and they were down at the Board of Education. And what I remember about that protest, I was like nine, is <laughs> Tara jumped up when they moved, when they pushed the racists out of the Board of Education in 1981 under Jane Byrne. Tara jumped up on and sat where the board president sat and was throwing peanuts at the crowd. So I say all that to say, um, I know the heart of some of these folks. You know, I know the heart of some of the folks around this administration. Um, and 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 I know the history, right? Um, I mean, I intimately know the history of, of you know, the West Side's new Cook County Commissioner. Um, these are people who are for the people. And, and the fact that they want to be strategic about how they go about it, I think, is a good thing. Hey, don't get me wrong. I'm the you can't go through life without strategy. I mean, I, you know, you can't. You can't play poker. You can't play chess. You can't play spades without some kind of strategy, uh, you know. And uh, so, yeah, I I agree. I, I've assumed, um, I and I we've talked about this on the show, so you alluded to uh, – uh, the gentleman whose name I, I, I'm blanking on right now, who Brandon made as his uh, chief of staff. Guides. Yeah. And I was joking about that in a column and on the mic a lot because never have I seen such enthusiasm from the, uh, the establishment in Chicago over a chief of staff as I saw as when he picked him and was announced. And uh, so then I did a challenge. I asked people, name Mayor Rahm's chiefs of staff. No one, only one person passed that test, and he's just a political nerd of the highest order. Shout out, Mick Dumpke. Uh, everybody else failed it because they're a normal human being, and nobody would bother to know who had the thankless job of being Mayor Rahm's chief of staff. And you know, I, I, I'm not going to call out some people, but I got some political operatives and, and lefty friends who um, – you know, I was talking to during the runoff and it's the irrational fear, the irrational fear that came when they saw that Brandon Johnson could win or was likely going to win and what they thought was going to happen in the city. And and these aren't people who I ever thought were racist, but I don't know what else it was a product of. Um, I don't know what they thought was going to happen. Uh, but it. it there's some folks who are well-known who I was texting who just had some real irrational fear about what would happen if, when Brandon won. Well, okay, so I know you're not going to go any further with, like, names and cetera and so forth uh, after that huge tease, uh, ladies <laughs> and gentlemen. Now, if, if it was a pre-show conversation, he would give the names, and I could charge for that, okay? And I could make money. I could be strategic for once in my life. <laughs> Uh, just once I could be strategic, but yeah, no, come on, I, dude, the 48% of the city voted for a MAGA man and yeah. I won't let them forget it. Yeah. So lakefront liberals, I'm not going to let you forget that because that was one of the most absurdest moves you ever made. Paul Vallis, <laughs> Paul Vallis is like a joke for everything you stand for and you voted for him. So Brendan, you know what was at play when when all those lakefront liberals voted for Paul Vallis, a man who is like courting uh, MAGA. 
Do you follow well, what I'm saying? Go ahead. Let me say this. So I, I came back to the city for a month. I, I, I was in Uptown the last 10 days of the runoff working for Angela Clay and, and Brandon Johnson. I actually, I took two over two precincts in uh, the southern part of the Voice Ward, which is really the uh, northern part of Wrigleyville. And let me say this. I was surprised. I had been in Uptown for several years. I was impressed. The, the number of young people of all races who are conscious and who are aware and who are thoughtful and who critically think it is a different world. So you could focus on the racist white folks who've never went away, whether you call them, whether they're on the southwest side, northwest side, or live on the lakefront, and those, uh, those older folks, but all the young folks of every, of every stripe and color, I, I was blown away and so hopeful for the city because of that. Well, I, I, at the risk of um, losing all credibility, because <laughs> I'm supposed to be jaded, uh, I got to tell you, Angela Clay's victory in the 46th Ward, I didn't see it coming. I, I just like I just clung to my old baby boomer beliefs uh, that white people on the lakefront are bigots and uh, they're never going to vote for uh, Angela Clay in a million years. They'll come up with a million excuses. And boy, was I wrong. So, you know. Um, she blew her out. It yeah, wasn't even close. It wasn't, wasn't close. Yeah. And even in the uh, 44th Ward. Brandon Johnson. Won the 44th Ward. 44th. Which, which, which Tom Tunney made it such a fool of himself uh, in the uh, Paul Val. It was embarrassing. The stuff that came out of his mouth, the old, the old alderman about how like the north side had been uh, victimized, and the when when Mayor Lori Lightfoot gave all the goodies to the west and south side, what a ridiculous and absurd statement to make. That was an elected official head of the zoning committee, by the way, ladies and gentlemen. No so, go no ahead. What part of the city you look at when you look at the vote totals by age, and you see how it was increased? Don't get me wrong, we we keep the state that. Brandon Johnson still got 8% of the black vote. This was a black vote victory. But no matter what part of the city you look at, when you look at the vote turnout by age and the difference between the primary and the runoff, this was a young person victory. And if and if you aren't hopeful because of how Gen Z got active, because of how conscious they are, because of how aware they are, then, then you're not paying attention. And this is a different generation. All right, so let me just make this appeal to Gen Z and millennials who are maybe listening. Please, please, please don't be like your baby boomer ancestors who sold out as soon as the Vietnam War ended and the draft was over. Please, please, please persevere. How about that, Brennan? Do you agree with me, by the way, that aside from your mom and a few others, most of them sold out? Well, I so I'm never I don't know if if a majority of the baby boomers were actually left. I don't think they were. I don't think a majority I think, you know, who were actually in the streets in the trenches against the war and civil rights, they may have been 10, 15, 20, 30 percent of the population. They were just in the streets. I think this may be the first generation where a majority are actually left. I think Gen Z, not millennials, not Gen X. You okay, know, not my people. Yeah. yeah, not my people. Not yeah. I think Gen Z may be the first generation. And, you know, in the 30s and 40s, they were reacting to the Great Depression and the Nazis. But I think legitimately conscious and critical thinking 
I think Gen Z may be the first generation where majority are actually that way. You, you could be right. And that uh, just a, a little promotional. And uh, David Ferris comes on the show every other week, uh, political science professor at Roosevelt University, truly one of the smartest uh, thinkers about American politics, in my humble opinion. And he wrote a book about this, uh, about how the left, uh, the left, the younger generation is moving left. Uh, and the impact it has on politics uh, and the challenges it means for Democrats and how Democrats so infrequently uh, make the right move to capitalize on that. Do not give. It just reads nihilism. Uh, and um, it just uh, cynicism uh, when they, the Democrats don't deliver. Uh, and so that, that's a, a paramount struggle uh that we're facing do you follow what i'm saying like z's and some millennials are making demands of the power structure uh to like student loan debt you know and then we didn't even talk about that supreme court ruling you know where they eradicate uh, erasing student loan debt just what was that all about brendan in your humble opinion if you're thinking strategically like what is the purpose of putting back that obligation why would the Supremes do that? What are they up to? What's their long-term strategy? To keep the power dynamic exactly as it is, to make sure poor people stay poor and people with privilege keep their privilege. <laughs> there, there is a, uh, there's a lot of false constructs that uh, we operate under. Um, and uh, I think underst- I think the the underpinning of of capitalism and economics being based on debt and obligations is one of those false constructs. But that's another long. Time. Wow, that's a, that's a whole show. I'm gonna yeah. write that down. Uh, I, in fact, you said it so fast, I, I can't even write it down. Uh, it caught me off guard with that one. A lot uh, of underpinnings of how we operate in and 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 the the conventional wisdom of what inflation is and isn't and how it's created and the conventional wisdom of of what, whether or not a debt is is moral or not, and and what the economics and uh, and how that drives the economy and power, I think a lot of that is is just propaganda. I think there's far more bigger moral debts to people who don't have anything into society than an economic debt. I don't think a loan is really a loan. I don't think the resource. Uh, that gets defined as currency is as much of a resource as people make it out to be. But I think it's vital for the people who have power to keep their power to create that impression. And the um, the relieving of student debt would put a dent in that, in that false construct, which would then put a dent in the power of people who have power. And also serves the larger person keeping you guys broke keep you broke ass <laughs> which serves their purposes as well the, the pp <laughs> the ppt loan forgiveness yeah. was something like eight times what the student loan forgiveness would have been this is not it's not we are such um a large society with yeah. so much wealth concentrated in so few hands it is not that difficult to uh change the dynamics, and I'm sorry, it's very difficult to change the dynamics. There's nothing about the economics and the wealth and the productivity of this society that wouldn't allow us to. Yeah. 
Um, but the product of the last 60 years of backlash, which has been underpinning this conversation that we've been talking about, is the greatest economic inequality since just prior to the Great Depression. Um, that's why in every major city now, homelessness is at its most rampant, no matter what major city you go to in this country. It's why in every, every major city in, in colonialized, imperialized countries, economic inequality is also at its most rampant. And homelessness is at its most rampant there. We've had 60 years of backlash. And, and now you just have a Supreme Court that doesn't even have to pretend anymore. Yeah. By the way, if you uh, you know a Supreme Court that doesn't even have to a Supreme Court that is openly accepting gratuities from the people on whose behalf they are ruling, openly doing it, just, just wow. I mean, one of the things that happened during the '60s that led that allowed this backlash was violence from the right against the left. They were violent. And they've continued to be violent for the last six years. And frankly, there's no violent threat from the left against the right. Wait, what violence are you thinking of? They killed Martin Luther King. They killed Malcolm X. They killed JFK. They killed anything that, that threatened their power. Yeah. It was also, I mean, there's always been violence, right? There's always been massacres. Um, the, the, the justification of white violence in this country the massive harmful white violence in this country, whether you're talking about prisons or whether you're just talking about the folks who like shooting guns at black churches, um, is bananas. But but the the thing that set the groundwork for the 60 years of backlash was the targeted violence during the 60s. Mm. Wow. And now, 60 years later, they feel completely comfortable doing whatever the fuck they want to do. Yeah. Openly accepting gratuities from on, from the folks on whose behalf they're making their rulings. That's what's going down with the Supremes these days, ladies and gentlemen. All right. Uh, we've run out of time, Brendan. So I'm going to give uh, you one more opportunity to project nothing but good vibrations. Uh, I'm going to project it on your behalf. I'm rooting for you 100 uh, percent. I'll send you the link to the final table in about 10 days when I'm on it. Okay. That's what I want to hear, man. Projecting victory. I love that. And by the way, I just need to tell you this. Similarly, I did so much talk about uh, the mayoral runoff, Vallis versus uh, Johnson. Every young lefty who came on this show, and there's a ton of them, projected uh, a Johnson victory. Every Gen Xer and boomer who came on this show projected a Paul Vallis victory. Yeah. Particularly media people. I'm calling you out. My brothers and sisters in the media didn't think it could happen. I got on the street in Uptown and I knew Brandon was going to win. I, 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 when I got to Chicago and I was on the street and I was talking to all the young folks, I knew, it was, I knew he was going to win. Guess it what, was. man? Yeah. I should listen to the young folks. That's the lesson. All right. So Nothing but the best to you. Send me that link because it's going to happen. I can't wait for it to happen. I can't wait to watch you on TV. And they're going to show me your cards. And I am going to be judging you. Hmm, But I have played that card. Hmm. Uh, I'm living vicariously through you right now, uh, Brendan Schuller. And so I'm wishing you nothing but success. How about that? Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on your show again. All right. Uh, And ladies and gentlemen, if it doesn't work, he'll still come back. 
Okay. <laughs> it's not, it's, I know you think it's Chicago. That's a quick pro quo. You only come back if he wins. No, nah, <laughs> not everything is Chicago. Okay. People sometimes not everything. All right. That's Brendan Schiller. He's got to go back and rest and get ready for uh, tomorrow's game. And uh, so thank you very much for coming on the show. Also, I want to thank producer Chris for doing an outstanding job, as he always does. I think Brendan will agree with me when I say, producer Chris, give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash or take it out of the ante. Take care, everybody. And remember, you can always download previous Ben Jarofsky shows, get Benny J bonus interviews, and so much more at chicagoreader.com. Follow the Ben Jarofsky Show on Instagram at Benny J Show and like and subscribe to the Ben Jarofsky Show on your favorite streaming and podcasting platforms.